Thanks for tuning in to the Door Church's Resources Podcast. These classes and trainings are designed to equip you to live a life shaped by Christ and centered around the gospel. To learn more about TDC, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Let's dive in. Why can't we believe it today? Not believing superstitiously in the magic of words, not believing ignorantly in some easy, ghostly ideas, but believing with clean, sharp belief. The eternal God is not hidden in clouds, but is accessible to the human heart wherever faith that ought to transform. This class, uh, it's about theology, but it's really about life. Um, A.W. Tozer, who's the guy in that video, said that what, we, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important things about us. What we think drives our behavior. And, and so today we're, we're going to look at um, the truth of the fact that God speaks to us. God speaks. And if you're a note taker, feel free to take notes. We're going to go through a lot of scripture and I would just advise you, just write down the verses so that you can go back to them later. Uh, they will be on the screen, so you don't have to, I can't flip through quickly enough either. Uh, so Kisto's going to cue those up for us, but we're going to look at a lot of scripture. Um, and, and before we get started, uh, you're a theologian. You may not know it, but you have thoughts about God. You have beliefs about God, and, and, and that is just what theology is. And this is a pastor-led class. Our, our pastors are leading this. It's happening in Louisville, and, and not a professor-led class. The, the point is, we want to shepherd your souls in the truth. We want to look at what is true together, which is God, and behold him, and not just store up stuff in our brains so that we would then become smarter or willing to, you know, quote Bible verses easier, um, but that we would change, we would, we would be different. And uh, two crucial truths, God is knowable, he's knowable, and he wants to be known. God is knowable and he wants to be known. And so we want to provide the, the so what of, of that. God is, God is knowable, that's pretty amazing. He wants to be known, that's pretty amazing. So what? what? What bearing does that have on us? So there was a quote as I was studying for this that I just, I came across accidentally, and it was perfect. And as we talk about the, 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 the doctrine of God's revelation to us, not talking about the book of the Bible revelation, but God's revealing himself to us. It's the doctrine of revelation. I came across this quote by a guy named William Henry Green. He was an 18th century scholar. His language is a little bit stilted, but you'll, you'll get it. He says this. Who can tell us whether this awful and mysterious silence in which the infinite one has wrapped himself portends mercy or wrath? Who can say to the troubled conscience whether he whose laws in nature are inflexible and remorseless will pardon sin. 
Who can answer the anxious inquiry, whether the dying live on or whether they cease to be? Is there a future state? And if so, what is the nature of that untried condition of being? If there be immortal happiness, how can I attain it? If there be everlasting woe, how can it be escaped? Let the reader close his Bible and ask himself seriously what he knows upon these momentous questions apart from its teachings. What solid foundation has he to rest upon in regards to matters so absolutely transcend all earthly experience and are so entirely out of the reach of our unassisted faculties? A man of facile faith may perhaps delude himself into the belief of what he wishes to believe. He may thus take upon trust God's unlimited mercy, his ready forgiveness to transgressors, and eternal happiness after death, but that is all a dream. He knows nothing. He can know nothing about it except by direct revelation from heaven. I don't know if you caught all of that. What Green is saying is, the big questions of your life, of my life, why am I here, where am I going, where did I come from, what does all this mean? You close your Bible and you try to figure this stuff out. You try to reason this out through observation or experience. You cannot answer those questions. You cannot answer eternal questions through your temporal, finite intelligence. You can't. And therefore, God must speak. God must reveal himself to us and therefore speak into these questions which are so beyond us. So God must speak. And we're going to look at, at five questions asking about God speaking. So, so the first question, if you're a note taker, is what is revelation? The second one will be what is the Bible? Number three, what does the Bible say about itself? Number four, who wrote the Bible? And number five, how does this apply to our lives? So I'll repeat those as we go in case you missed those in your type A. So starting with a definition of revelation, what is revelation? Revelation is the process of God revealing himself to man. It's God speaking about himself to us. And understand that God is incomprehensible. He's not able to be fully comprehended by the human mind, but he is knowable and intimately so. And so while he's incomprehensible, he wants us to be known and therefore he reveals himself to us so that we can understand and know him. He is a relational God and, and he, he really, he, he speaks in three ways, if you think about it. He speaks into creation, like, like when he created, he spoke into creation and creation came to being. Let there be light, there was light. He, he spoke into creation from outside. He speaks from creation, which is something we'll talk about. Creation is communication from God. And then because of Jesus, God speaks from within creation. So from without, 
and from within and from. We'll talk about more all of that a little bit more in a second. And so revelation is not speculation. Speculation would be what we can come up with in our, our human brains. And speculation is not bad. It's, it's just incomplete. It's insufficient. And so speculation would include things like philosophy or modern spirituality, any spirituality, in fact, man-made religion, social sciences. So, so some of these things are good. Social sciences are good. But they're, they're not complete. And they lack authority. They can teach us about us. They can teach us about humanity. They can teach us about history. They can teach us about the way the brain works. And, and that's, praise God, that we have that. But these cannot reveal answers to those higher questions. And even more, these cannot reveal answers about God, the nature of God. So to, to learn about God who is transcendent, he must speak from a higher plane of truth to us in a way that we can understand. And he does that. So revelation is, is kindness. You thought about that. It is kind for God to reveal himself to us. He doesn't have to. It is kind, and, and we are small, and he is big, and, and he says, I want you to know me, and therefore we get to know him. Again, it's not about knowledge, but it's about having a relationship with him. That's why he communicates to us. It is the goal of revelation that he would be glorified in a beautiful relationship with us. And so when someone tells you something, you, you should consider the source. Does this person have credibility or authority? Should I listen to them on this topic? God has infinite authority and wisdom. And therefore, his revelation is infallible and reliable. It is without error. He does not make mistakes. He does not fail. And so his revelation can be trusted. And there's, there's two categories that scholars usually put revelation into. There's general revelation and there's special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. So general revelation is, is, is something that God reveals about himself to all people. It is generally knowable. It is a broader category. It is a broader communication to a broader audience. But it does not give God a name. General revelation, which I'll further define, does not give God a name and it does not provide salvific knowledge, meaning it does not display the glories specifically of Jesus, but the character and the nature and the grandeur of God. And so there's a few different ways that we can look at this. These are not the only three ways, but these are three ways that you could look at general revelation. One would be in creation. God speaks through what he has made. And so in, in Romans 1, it'll be on the screen. And I would just invite y'all, there's a lot of scripture. I would just invite you to, to be present as I read the scriptures. It's easy over time to begin like, okay, okay, this is the word of God we're reading and he is revealing himself even now in this room. So Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, so what, what Paul is saying in Romans is that God reveals himself, his, his eternal power and divine nature. All of us can perceive that. The, the, the tribesmen in Africa can perceive that. The suburban mom in Argyle can perceive that. You can perceive God's glory in what he has made. You can see something about him. You can see that he's creative. Have you all ever seen a hummingbird? It's my favorite animal. I think they're the coolest things ever. They're like these little insect-bird hybrid things, and they have all these colors, and they're They're amazing. But God is creative. He didn't have to create something that intricate, that beautiful, that interesting. But he is creative. He is powerful. If you've been next to a, an ocean, like on the West Coast, and you've heard a, a, a wave break, you can feel God's power. He also communicates that he clearly cares about beauty. He cares about painting sunsets. He cares about landscapes. He cares about the beauty of a newborn child. He cares about beauty. There's no answer for that but for God. He cares about beauty. And creation is to be something that, that we enjoy and behold. I once heard a, a Christian leader, a prominent guy, and someone asked him what his hobbies were, and he joked. He said, I'm a great indoorsman. And that can't be. That can't be. I mean, you don't have to be an adventurer or an explorer. You don't have to, but you, to, to be a, a, a Christian, to be a child of God is to appreciate what he has made. So behold his glory. Admire his glory. That's general revelation, a creation. The second thing in, in general revelation is common grace. So God is at work in our world. He's not an absentee landlord just giving us the keys to live here for a while. He's not a divine watchmaker where he builds a world, builds a watch, and then separates himself from it. But he is actively involved in this world, blessing believers and unbelievers. None of us get what we deserve. Do you realize that? We don't get what we deserve. We don't deserve good weather. We don't deserve the gifts and talents that we have. And, 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 and you see those present in believers and unbelievers. I had a roommate in college who is and was an agnostic, and that dude was the most athletic person I've ever been around. It's not like God goes, oh, you're a Christian, so I'm going to bless you in these ways. But God has, has general revelation through common grace displaying his power and his ability to make people interesting and talented. And so it says in Matthew 5, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. We all get to enjoy the common grace of sun. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. There is common grace, grace that is common to all. It is general revelation, God revealing his kindness to the world, to people who don't believe, don't, don't believe or don't deserve it. And then a third way of general revelation, a third category would be conscience. So we have an internal sense of right and wrong. 
Regardless of what you believe, what you ascribe to, you, you have an innate sense, C.S. Lewis appealed to this a lot in his arguments, of right and wrong. There is a moral code that we all agree upon. And there are cultural differences. But by and large, we know that murder is wrong. By and large, we know that oppressing people is wrong. Societies go in and out of that, but we have, there's a, there's a general standard that we have internally. It is how we are wired, and it helps us to learn about our Creator, what He wants, what He deems as good. And so Romans 2 explains this. Paul says, for, for when Gentiles, that is non-believers, non-Jews, who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is, check this out, written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We have a conscience that tells us about God that is, that is for all believers and unbelievers. That is general revelation. So let's talk about special revelation. If, if general revelation, if you want to summarize it, is God speaking beautiful generalities about himself. Special revelation is God's way of speaking to us in such a way that we would have faith in Jesus. It is the knowledge that, that is salvific, that does lead to faith, and this is applied to our hearts and to our minds by the Holy Spirit. It is not mere reasoning, but there is something supernatural happening as the Spirit applies the truths about God to our hearts, and that's what we hope is happening here tonight as we consider these things. And so 1 Corinthians 2 explains this. The natural person, that would be a person that does not have the Holy Spirit in them, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The gospel is folly to them. The things of God are folly to them. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, discerned by the Spirit of God. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. So, so the Holy Spirit gives us a mind to consider Christ, to see Christ. Not just the historical person, but, but the, the present reality of who Jesus is, Christ the King, Christ the Savior. And so special revelation, that is revelation about Jesus, is, is not addressed to mankind in general, but to a more particular audience. It is for those that God foreknew before the foundation of the world to, to know Jesus. And so the, the invitation is for all to hear. The salvation is very exclusive. It is through Christ alone. And so that is, that is the message of special revelation. If general revelation is beautiful general, general realities, special revelation is salvific because it, it reveals Jesus. And so God speaks most personally through Jesus. He is the Word of God. And, and so by, by listening to Jesus, I don't just mean just listening. I mean by, by beholding with your entire being, considering Him, 
we learn what, what accords with salvation. So Hebrews 1 shows us this dynamic. It says, long ago, that would be in times before Christ, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, we live in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God communicates to us primarily in regards to salvation through Jesus. He is the word. He is the message. And special revelation can be in certain instances be supernatural as God reveals things supernaturally. And so, for example, um, when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, it said the angel answered her that the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Most Holy, the Son of God. The angel of the Lord is communicating to Mary in a supernatural way special revelation to her about Jesus. So the Bible, you could say in, in, in some ways the Bible is both general revelation and special revelation. Theologians typically say it's special revelation, which, which it is, but it's, it's generally available to most people in developed nations, like in, in, in civilized societies. So if you're not in a slum in India, there's probably a Bible somewhere around you. The Gideons put them in hotel rooms. They're on your phone. They're, they're everywhere. Scripture is everywhere. And there are people that read their Bible that are not Christians. Regular, daily Bible readers that are not Christians. How can this be? Well, the things of God are spiritually discern because the Holy Spirit shows us Christ in the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3, it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, also woman, may be complete equipped for every good work. And just before that, it says that in verse 15 that the, that the Scriptures make us wise unto salvation. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation because they make us wise unto Christ. And so special revelation by the Spirit in the Word of God illuminates Jesus and helps us to see who He is and who we are. We see the standard of the law. The standard, God's perfect moral code. And we see that we are, 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 are lawbreakers. We see that we are rebels. And, and the, the whole scripture, it, it's, it's, it's showing and it's hinging around Jesus. It's coming to him. He is the climax of the Bible. He's the point of the Bible. And so what is the Bible? What is the Bible? You could say that God wrote a book and, and, and that's the Bible. Here it is. And, and Bible means book. Scripture means writings. 
It means that God wants to communicate with us very clearly, and he wants us to, to read this book and to pray this book and to meditate on this book and to learn this book. We should be people of the book, of the word. And the Bible is actually a collection of books. So it's, it's like a, a divine library. There's 66 books in the Bible, 39 Old Testament, 27 New. And they're not chronological. You can, you can buy a chronological Bible. They're, they're sometimes almost chronological. But they're arranged into different genres. That's how the Bible is, is, is arranged, into law and wisdom and the prophets and the gospels and the letters. And so you have these different categories. That's how your Bible is, is broken up. And it was written over 1,500 years, a span of 1,500 years, 40 authors. It's written mostly in Greek and Hebrew and some in Aramaic. So various cultures, various languages. And it is an interconnected tapestry of truth. So when I say the Bible is, is, is coherent, and it's all about Jesus, and there's all these cross-references. There's this picture. You could put it up there. So this is a representation of the cross-references in the Bible, of the Bible speaking to the Bible, the Bible connecting to itself. Some guy put this together. Isn't that cool? So the Bible is coherent. You can leave that up for a minute, Kisto. It's coherent, and it's, it, it's a tapestry within itself, Jesus being the primary message. There are two testaments, 66 books, one divine revelation, and that is that Jesus is king. So as water you know, finds a low point and it carves a, a groove as it goes down to a low point, that's the Grand Canyon, it, it carves its way down. The whole Bible is, is moving toward carving a groove toward Jesus, and the longer you read it, I don't mean like in a day, but I mean like the more years you walk under God's word, the more you begin to see these illusions, not illusions like magic, illusions like alluding to more closely and more beautifully. And so you should, you should be wowed as you read the Bible. You should be amazed as you read the Bible. And so the Old Testament points to Jesus. I've said that a billion times, and I'm going to keep saying it. But uh, it says in, in 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, this is the, the Old Testament prophesying about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. They had the Spirit of Christ in them. It was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, that's the cross, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you by those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that angels long to behold. It is not yesterday's newspaper. It is the most vibrant, fresh news that should fall fresh on your ears and fresh on your heart over and over again. And if it, if it is not, I want you to pray for that. And I want you to read the book. And I want you to take in the book because it is powerful 
and it is glorious. And so Peter, who's a Jew, is saying, this is what the Bible has always been about. This is what the prophets were talking about, is this moment in time when God puts on flesh, becomes a man, and suffers for us, to purchase us. And the New, New, the New Testament connects to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is not old news. So if, if you're just kind of a New Testament person, like, yeah, that's kind of old stuff, old covenant, not under that anymore. It's, it's, no, that, that was Jesus' Bible that Jesus read. Jesus says himself in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not saying, he's saying don't throw that out. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You can understand Deuteronomy better when you understand the fulfillment of Deuteronomy. You can understand proverbian wisdom when you understand the wisdom of Christ. You can understand what's happening in Exodus, the rescue, when you understand the divine rescue of Christ. You see He's the lens through which you can more clearly see the Old Testament. And so don't flip in the Old Testament like this doesn't apply to me. No, no, no. See Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. See Jesus being what they were pointing to in the Old Testament. So what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible is, is, is self-authenticating and it has much to say about itself. And you might say, that's a circular argument. So if you're a philosophy person, you're like, well, that, you say the Bible is the source of truth. How do you know that? Because the Bible says the Bible is the source of truth. Well, it is, but we'll, we'll talk about manuscripts in a minute. And if you want to geek out on that, I'm going I'm to encourage you, you, you go do that because you'll be amazed. But the Bible says about itself, and I'm going I'm to rifle through some scriptures, that, that it is perfect. So Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. Isn't that amazing? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible says that it is perfect. The Bible says that it is true. John 17 says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is talking. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the Bible. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. That is what we are doing. We want to be sanctified, washed in truth. The Bible says about itself that it is effective. So it says in the scripture, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's in Isaiah. So this is the guarantee of Bible reading. This is what God promises you when you open your Bible at your kitchen table with a cup of coffee. He promises you that he has a purpose for his word and it never, ever, ever returns void. It is never wasted time. And don't, don't, don't do the whole, I don't want to read my Bible when I don't want to read my Bible because that's legalism. That's nonsense. The word of God never returns void. This gives me great confidence as someone who preaches because my words void. 
God's words never return void, ever. And so all this scripture that we're reading that's flashing up on a screen and you're just taking in with your ears, it is accomplishing a purpose. God is speaking to you. He is speaking to me. Additionally, God's word is complete. It says in Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the, so the Bible is complete. It's not like panning for gold. Where you get like little pebbles and you throw those out and you find the gold. It's like just gold. And you might think, well, the genealogies are not just gold. The genealogies are gold. It is complete. Every word of God proves true. And finally, the word of God is, is alive. It says in Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active. That's what I was saying. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible cuts through to the truth of your existence. It is living and active. So who wrote the Bible? The Bible is a partnership between God and man. And God moved through personality, through culture, through education, and through experience. In 2 Peter 1, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, I love this, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So who wrote the Bible, God or man? Well, yes. God carried them along with their pen, carried them along with their minds, carried them along with their experiences. And so the Bible can be trusted. And so if you take the average manuscript from a classic work, it's, it's the, the, the ancient manuscript of an ancient classic work like Homer or Plato, it's, it's about four feet long. If you just laid it on the stage, it's about four feet long. And the manuscripts of the Bible are two and a half miles long. So that's out Gateway Drive. That's over on 407. That's north on 377 past the middle school. There's manuscripts on manuscripts on manuscripts. There's currently 24,000 manuscripts of the Bible in various languages from various dates. So archaeological records back up the Bible. History backs up the Bible. And what I would say, and we just saw... Um, that the Word of God proves true, I think your life backs up the Bible. The more I read my Bible in the morning and then go about my day, the more I see that what God says is not only true because He says it's true, but it is experientially true. His wisdom comes true. What He says about me comes true. What I see about His glory comes true. And it is self-authenticating experientially. And it is inerrant. That's, that's just a word. It just means without error. So God carried along different people at different times and different contexts to write this Bible, and it is not wrong. So Thomas Jefferson allegedly, I don't know if this really happened, took the Bible in the White House and took a razor blade and carved out the parts that he didn't like. And that's not how this works. Because God, the Spirit of God, is really the, the surgical razor blade for our hearts 
to perform spiritual surgery on us, showing us what is true, not us telling God what we will keep and what we will throw out in in his word. And so the reformers of the Christian faith had this term, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. It means that scripture alone is sufficient for saving knowledge. Not only scripture, not solo scriptura, which would mean that we only need revelation from the Bible, that it is sola, it is sufficient for saving knowledge. So the question of all of that is so what? So what? What bearing does this have on Wednesday morning for you? the rest of this evening on your marriage, on your kids, on your emotions, your thought life, your business? What, what bearing does this have on you? And, and, and my heart, our heart as the pastors of this church is that, that, that this, this truth, it doesn't happen in a few Tuesday classes, but that the truth of God would begin to shape and transform the way you see the world, And so we see something. We see that God, who, who wants to communicate with us, is not distant and he is not cold. That he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. That he wants you to have a relationship with him. And so be comforted by the fact that the infinitely powerful God, who makes the crazy thunderstorms that roll through this place and made you, it made your brain and the synapses that are firing to understand what I'm saying right now, that, that that God wants to know you intimately and personally. And whether this is the first time you, you're, you're knowing that or, or the millionth time, be comforted by that knowledge. Be amazed at the intricacy of the Bible. If you're underwhelmed by the Bible, you're not studying it. That picture just shows this this artwork of this divine literature. And so be amazed at how this, this intricate book, this 66 book book points to Jesus in the most beautiful way, in simple ways that are not simplistic, in complex ways that are not impossible to understand, but in beautifully created ways. Be amazed at the Bible and be informed by God's truth See the world by it. Let it be your lens. So Uvalde happened. How in the world do you make sense of that? What do you do with that? If you have no concept of good and evil and of wickedness and of an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy, what do you do with that? Where do you file that? I'm not saying that the word of God makes you valdi okay. I'm saying it becomes in sharper focus. You can begin to see tragedy 
and not just go, where, where are you, God? You see he is working. How do you reckon with your friend with cancer? What would you say to them? If you don't have a concept, if you don't have a, a, an idea of life and death and eternal life, what do you do with that? You can have a grid through which to see these things. And it does not erase the sadness. It does not erase the fear, but it gives you a clearer lens to see. To see God revealing himself in his scriptures and therefore in this world. Don't be confused. Don't be perplexed. And don't get your source of truth from some nonsense somewhere. If you want to watch nonsense or scroll nonsense, that's fine. Read your Bible first. And so God's revelation, him speaking, it ultimately points to Jesus. I've said it a million times. The Bible will say it a million times. That is the transformation. New information, not transformation. New history, not transformation. New logic, not transformation. Jesus, the Savior who, who the Bible's pointing to and shows, and then the letters that write back about him instructing us for life and godliness, he is the road to salvation. In Colossians 1, if you have not listened to a scripture, I want you to drink in every drop of this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a good summary of God's revelation, of God speaking to you. And not only does God speak to you, we can pray to him. And what is that? Well, that's the beginning of a relationship. So let me pray and then we'll begin to, to discuss this. I'll give instructions for that. Would you pray with me? And Father, it, it, it feels laughable for a man to talk about God. It, it, it's been sobering even to study for this, to, to present these truths about you 
for fear that they would not be properly explained or adequately teased out because your glory is beyond my mouth. But what I pray is that we would trust in your revelation that you speak to us through your word, through creation, through one another's mouths, through our conscience, through common grace, that you intend to communicate with us that you would be known. What right do we have? None except for Jesus. Except for the blood which gives us the right to know you and to come near, though we don't deserve it. And as we discuss, Lord, as we consider these things, Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus real to us? Would you make this truth applicational to us? Would you impart your wisdom to us that we would have a a lens, a clearer lens to see this world and to see our life? I pray the blessing of wisdom over all of those in this room and for the kids that are making that beautiful racket. Make us wise unto salvation. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.